Now, hello everyone, and welcome. My name is Andrew. And I'm Rachel. And we are Peach of the Scene Podcast, brought to you by Aura Studios. We are a true crime podcast aiming to put you, the listener, at the scene of the crime. We bring you a new episode on a weekly basis, mainly focusing on lesser-known crimes from the UK and Ireland. However, at times, we expand into cases from anywhere in the world and all ones that are well-known. Let's not um, beat around the bush, Andrew. I, I usually take on the 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 more well-known cases, don't I? Because you love bringing us those uh, sneaky ones that we haven't heard of before. I do. The sneaky crimes. I do, but actually, this one, I always do the UK and Ireland, don't I? But this one's from the US. <gasps> oh. Um, but yeah, you're right. Um, as we are two kind podcast, listener caution is always advised. And today I'm covering a racist crime. So along with the descriptions of violence, I may have to use language that is deemed racist. If I do, it will only be in the right context and because I will be quoting someone. Now I try to avoid it. I haven't wrote the script at the time of writing this intro, as you can probably tell. So hopefully I can avoid it altogether. But one thing I can't avoid is I also touch on animal abuse in this one. So there's your trigger warnings. For me, oh. I, I hate listening to animal abuse, so I really hated mentioning it, but I have to. Yeah, and obviously you've already t- you've just touched as well on the, the racism element, so it's going to be a fun case today. Thanks, Andrew. That's okay, but it just fascinated me. Now, if you like what you hear, please do follow us on whatever social media platform you prefer. Subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform of choice. And if you have the capability, give us a rating review as well. It does mean a world to us. Now, if you like it that much, you want to support us, you can do so for less than the price of a cup of tea or coffee on Patreon. We currently only have one tier, and that's at £1 a month. We release bonus content every month. The link to our social medias and Patreon can be found in the show notes, or visit patreon.com forward slash scenepod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash S-C-E-N-E-P-O-D. Now, additionally, we now release, where, when possible, each episode of Week Alien Patreon. So if you want to become a time traveller, support us, and you would have heard this last week. So, Rachel, what's new in the world of Rachel? Well, for those who were worried about my knee, it's feeling a lot better, thanks. And, uh, yeah, yeah, That's and uh, I'm I'm back back to training, back, back strong. That's great to hear. Uh, that's great to hear. Now, the question I have to ask you, Rachel, and I feel obliged to ask this question, is are you ready for some true crime? I was born ready. That's what your mum told me. So, <laughs> sorry, listeners. Um, my mum did tell me that. Her dad did. So, anyway, um, today's case, I've changed my usual format. I'm going to the States, as I mentioned earlier. And I want to actually introduce you to the main protagonist first before getting to the scene of the crime. So let's say hello to James Harris Jackson. Do you know that name, Rachel? I don't, but what's a name? That's It, it sounds very um, royal. James Harris Jackson. Prince James Harris Jackson. Actually, towards the end, he used to refer to himself as Sir even though Ooh, he, he, wasn't wow. a sir. he wasn't a sir, so I think he saw himself as a sir. But anyway, I'm digressing. He was born in 1988 and was one of three children, all boys, in what is described as a quite a liberal, middle-class family in the small town of Towson, 
which is in the state of Maryland. Now, as a child, he went to a private school, the Friends School of Baltimore, and it's a school that uses the Quaker principles of non-violence and equality at the heart of everything that he does. After he graduated from that school, he wanted to join the army, and did so in March of 2009, having a specialist role of a military intelligence analyst. After being stationed in a couple of different army bases within the United States, he was deployed to an army base in Germany, his favourite country by the way, in October of 2009, some seven months after he first joined the army. Now James spent a year in Germany before being deployed to Afghanistan in October of 2010, with his role there meaning that he wrote daily intelligence summaries and specifically he helped counter the threat of IEDs, which, for those that don't know, stand for Improvised Explosive Devices. Now, Rachel, would you say so far that it sounds like he's had a great upbringing? He's been taught non-violent ways of living in a liberal household, that went to, and then he went to save his country. And even when he saved his country, he was in a non-violent role within the army, helping to save lives, not to take them. Absolutely. And that's why I kind of just said, oh dear, because I was like, either you've introduced us to the um, victim or, yeah, he, he's going to take a complete U-turn. Well, making faces, I'm just sort of throw this in there. His dad was a card-carrying Barack Obama fan and his grandfather actually helped desegregate schools in Louisiana, which is a southern state. So he's got a history of anti-racism in his family. Wow. Now, now, James left the army in 2012, and in 2015, he got an honourable discharge, by the way, so nothing dodgy about leaving the army. And in 2013, he enrolled in a bachelor's programme in um, computer networks and security at the University of Maryland. Because in America, when you leave the army, you've got what you call the GI Bill, and they, they can support your education. Right. I couldn't find out how long he spent on that degree, but he ultimately dropped out due to not complete completing the required work linked to the course. Now, his dropping out signals what would be the start of a difficult period for James. He struggled mm-hmm. to really find a purpose for himself after leaving the army, not being able to complete his degree, not settling down to one particular job, and setting roots for himself, you know, really finding his purpose in life. He didn't have many friends, and he lived quite a solitary life. So let's fast forward a few years, shall we, to March the 17th, 2017, which is St. Patrick's Day. And James decided to travel to New York from Washington, where he was. So he got on a bus and he travelled there. Mm -hmm. And New York's quite big on celebrating St. Patrick's Day, isn't it? Yes. A lot of Irish in in the States. Yes. Now, he chose New York because of all the media that was housed there. He spent the next couple of days walking around New York, getting the feel of the place, looking for something, rehearsing yeah. in his head what he wanted to do. So this leads up to March the 20th of 2017. So now, if it's safe for you all to do so, I'd like now for all of you to relax, close your eyes and picture the scene. We're now in New York City on March the 20th, 2017. And it's late at night, around 11.15pm. I don't think... Anyone needs much of an introduction to New York, Rachel. We all know New York, don't we? And it definitely wasn't in a doomsday book. But on the late Monday night, 
in Midtown Manhattan area of New York, which is a which is a central part of Manhattan, which is a borough within New York. It's mainly known for its business district. It's also home to some of the most iconic buildings and spaces, not only in New York, but probably the entire United States. Uh, to name a few, the Empire State Building, the UN, Broadway, Times Square, and that's just a few of them. So if you've been to New York, chances are you've definitely been to Midtown Manhattan. And to be even more exact, we're in Hell's Kitchen or Clinton area of Midtown Manhattan. So have you been to New York, Rachel? I have actually been to New York several times. And it's, uh, it's my favourite city on earth. It's, one of, it's on my bucket list. So I guess you've been to Midtown Manhattan and t- Times Square and whatnot. I have indeed. And I feel like you're about to tell me something that doesn't happen, um, that happens that isn't very nice. Possibly, we are two kind podcast, not a baking podcast. Remember? Oh uh, yeah, I remember. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to hard, hard to remember. How did that Japanese cheesecake turn out? It's nice, they're wobbly, you know. Japanese cheese, cheesecakes are not a normal cheesecake. You actually bake them, and when you take them out, it's really light and soft, and they wobble a lot. Anyway, back to true crime. It was it was a dry night. There was no rain at all that day. There was not much wind, and it was around forty eight degrees Fahrenheit which is around 9 degrees Celsius. James Harris Jackson, who we met earlier, was dressed quite smartly. He was in shoes, not trainers, or sneakers, I think they're called in America. He was in blue jeans with a shirt tucked in that was covered up with a long, buttoned-up black coat. He had a pale complexion, blonde hair that was short, with a prominent side parting, and very neat. Is nice. that okay? Yeah. yeah. If you saw him, you'd probably not think much. He was quite unassuming. He was not threatening to look at, and he'd blend quite well into the background. James had been walking around looking for something to practice on, looking for the right person. And then he found him at around 11.15 on that dark, quiet night in Hell's Kitchen. He saw near some garbage bins Timothy Kaufman, who was 66 years old. And at that moment in time, looking through the bins to find cans and bottles for recycling to make a few dollars. Timothy, he never had much in life, but he was generally happy. He lived in a single-room accommodation that was in the Barber Hotel on nearby West 36th Street. Now, even though the hotel was used mainly by people transitioning from being homeless to having accommodation, Timothy had lived there for 20 years. It was home to him. His nickname was Hard Rock, because he was in he was in the past a skilled boxer and street fighter, but I didn't mean that he was aggressive. He had a, he had been a social worker and had spent several years running a division of a federal anti poverty campaign. The money he obtained from his recycling that he was doing at the time we're talking about, he used to pay for his room and indulge himself in trips to Washington as he loved politics. And he loved attending congressional hearings. He liked mm-hmm. nothing. Yeah, he liked nothing more than to read a book. And if he did start talking to him, he loved nothing more than talking about religion or philosophy with you. Now he didn't see James approach him. He didn't see James pull a twenty-six inch in length Roman style sword from under his coat, and he didn't see the first initial blow coming towards him from that sword and stabbing him in the back. He gave up a fight, though, but ultimately he was stabbed several times with a sword 
before James ran off into the night. Oh, my God. And did he leave the sword or did he take that with him? The sword, actually, uh, no, he took it with him and he dumped it in a bin. Timothy wasn't, yeah, Timothy wasn't giving up on life without a fight, though. He managed somehow to take himself to the nearby police precinct in Hell's Kitchen, entering the building, stumbling and staggering towards the front desk. However, before the officer and duty could ask him his business, Timothy collapsed on a bench, dripping in blood. Several officers rushed to his aid, and upon lifting up his shirt, they saw several stab wounds. They tried to stem the bleeding. They tried to ask him who did it, but he couldn't speak. He could only groan. A few minutes later, he was in the Manhattan hospital, but he passed away without being able to say a word. Oh, my goodness. Now, remember... And you, you'd said that James was had identified him as a practice victim, right? Yes. Yes, he was just a practice victim. So, around 24 hours later... Just after midnight on the Tuesday night slash Wednesday morning, the police were still clueless as to the motive for the killing. By now, they had some witnesses who saw the two men struggling, Timothy trying to stop and overpower James, but ultimately failing. And CCTV would show a smartly dressed, but still unknown to them, James Jackson running away from the scene. So 24 officers were in Times Square, because it's a major tourist spot, to try and find the killer and or prevent any more attacks when James Harris Jackson appeared out of the throngs of tourists in Times Square. He calmly walked up to one of the officers, quietly but assuredly saying, I'm the guy you're looking for, before taking off a long black coat that he had on, the same coat that concealed a 26-inch sword, when he attacks Timothy, and they place it down in front of the officer, saying to the officer, there's knives in that coat. Now, unsurprisingly, he was arrested. So, why did he pick Timothy to kill? Why was it practice? What else had he done? And what was his motives? What was his motives behind the killing? I have a lot of questions. All of which you've just asked out loud there. So I'm looking forward to hearing the answers, which I'm hoping you have. I do have, yes. Now, I said earlier that he chose New York for the media there, the coverage he would get. In the hours after his arrest, he said that he picked Timothy out simply because he was alone and he was black. He wanted to practice killing a black man before going on to do what he had really gone to New York to do. His intention was to go to Times Square and kill as many black men that he could find that were with white women. His exact wo- yes, his exact words were, I was looking to get black men scared and have them do reciprocal attacks and inspire white men to do similar things. Oh my goodness me. And like what what's been going on in his head in this build up of his period of time where he's felt so lonely and isolated and you know lost since leaving the army that's allowed him to indulge in that in this like yeah well, well fantasy that, oh, that's the question i asked myself um he would also go on to say that if they really wanted to understand him they'd read the manifesto he had written on his, his computer that he planned to send to the media but rather randomly he hadn't sent it to the media 
before giving Hanium himself in. He was also asked why he didn't carry out his main attack that he had planned, given the police were not close to catching him. They'd only had him because he gave himself up. Now, he said he was processing, processing what he had done already, and then he replied, if I just stab another person, what difference does that make? The point's already been made. He wanted to ignite a race war. In his words, these are his words, his ultimate goal was, a global policy aimed at the complete extermination of the Negro race. Oh, my God. In his manifesto, I say that. He actually put that, he wanted all the Western countries to get together and develop a, a weapon that would target black people by the genetics and kill them all off. Um, obviously, he didn't get what he wanted. So, how did we get here? Now, before this happened... James could have been argued to be the poster boy of acceptance and understanding. He had friends in school who were not white. When spoken to after the fact, none of his friends or family thought he would ever have the hate to think this, let alone act on it, even when things were not going well in life for him. The police would do a full electronic investigation of James. What it revealed... It's quite alarming and disturbing. It turned out for a large part of his life, dating back to when he was in high school, James struggled with racist thoughts and violent impulses. In 2013, it turns out James was at his lowest. He contemplated suicide and even wrote a 7,000 word suicide note, which gave insight into his mind. He spoke about Many things in the notes, but he did outline his thoughts and feelings, which is why we know he had raised his thoughts from a young age. He would describe how when he was young, his family let him pick a dog for the family. That he spent many years loving the dog, but also torturing it. Oh my God. He described how he'd get the dog to run really fast while on the lead, just so he could yank it back, causing it great pain. And in his words almost breaking its neck on several occasions. So imagine that poor dog rage. They're such a loyal creatures that even at all this abuse, he would still be loyal to James, and he'd still go running when he told him to, even though he probably knew what was coming next. I can't just, cope. Yeah, just to be really hurt and confused as to why this was happening. And, like, obviously that is also something that you do to tell dogs no, like naughty. Yeah. So there's like that element of absolute confusion as well. I, yeah. I've been told to run. I'm running. I'm doing as I'm told. Oh, you know, yeah. he doesn't want me to run. I'm naughty. Oh, God, he's doing it again. Like, you know. And I'm guessing also seeing his owner very happy that it was happening. Oh, my God. So, yeah. It's... Like, that's heartbreaking. And like, yeah. you know, not to cast a shadow over what like his intentions were in New York at that time as well to kill black men to prevent like interracial relationships like it's awful this is just horrible this this man yeah. is evil pure evil yeah I don't, I don't feel like it correlates with the man that you introduced us to in the army no. no exactly so he he went he then went on to describe how he began thinking about hating people and then he discovered world war ii and the nazis he said I discovered the Nazis who I felt a strong kinship with for what seemed like obvious reasons in retrospect, the promise of absolute naked power. 
This is well. This is all Rachel while being a normal average student in school. He never excelled, getting B's and C's, but he was seemingly happy with that. He would drink and smoke weed. He was in the school choir and the school golf society. He even acted in some of the school plays. Now, Garney Rains, who taught him history at school, said that he never detected a hint of racism in him. He said this, I was a black man married to a white woman with mixed-race children. I would sometimes bring my infant daughter to school. If he was mired in his hatred, then he must have hated me. And yet I had no idea. Oh, that must be really um, awful to reflect on as well, like, and analyse all your interactions over the years. Like, was I just, uh, um, and I'm talking about that teacher now, in in the sense of, was I just um, used to, like, dismissing certain behaviours and therefore didn't identify it? Or was he pained when he was talking to me because he didn't, like, like me and I just like glanced over that do you know what I mean that would talk to you wouldn't that I know now another classmate who was black spoke about how the two really bonded over the love of history and she felt that James was the only one who truly understood her oh wow he even dated an Asian girl for a while that's not going to make you feel good as well if you bonded with him yeah you know I think that's going to make you reflect really on your own beliefs as exactly. well. If you've got, if you met someone who you think this is the only person who ever, ever really truly understood me, and then it turns out to be this person, what's that going to do to your confidence? Because that person's obviously not got a huge amount of confidence anyway. Oh, hundred uh, percent. So in his yearbook, he had wrote, he had quotes from the Quran about the civil rights movement. So moving on forward to his period in the army, he served alongside Hispanic and Asian service members. His supervisor was black. He described his time in the army as the happiest time of his life. He would say about the army, yeah, I know, he'd say about the army, during my deployment, I had never thought about killing myself for the first time in years. I had a purpose and a mission in Afghanistan, however preposterous that mission was. So he even identified that probably the Americans and the West in general shouldn't be in Afghanistan because he, he described it as preposterous. So yeah. he had that clarity of mind. But I wonder whether, like, the hatred for the... Um, the hatred for the war um, over um, overshadowed his hatred for, um, like, the Americans back... back who who were black? Possibly, I don't know. Just just like just took away for in in those those years, took away his um his thoughts um, about that because he was so focused on get, on yeah. the war that he was fighting. Possibly, yeah. So his internet usage for when he left the army ramped up, and it was all hate filled message boards about white supremacy and YouTube channels. Are they not monitored though? I thought that people were monitored for when when they were prominent on these channels and chat boards and maybe followings. now I, I, I'd assume so maybe now maybe not back then I honestly don't know yeah you'd think that you surprised me that there's YouTube channels like this to be honest but obviously I've never gone looking for them so that's why but um but yeah on on the 17th of June 2015. 
uh, did a move, would walk into a church, the Emmanuel African Methodist Epsical Church in downtown Charleston, South Carolina, and open fire during a Bible study, killing nine people, all black, and injuring one other. His attack was a racially motivated one. He wrote a manifesto, which I read and really wish I didn't read, actually, uh, really? that that appeared online after he killed, and after he'd killed and been arrested. And in it, he, state, he stated he wanted to start a race war that he had to start soon, or there wouldn't be enough white people to win a race war. So this James, yeah, James. When you say when you say it appeared online, it wasn't part of the documents that came about because of his arrest and his court appearance. Somebody no. had leaked that to inspire others that might well, have similar. He thoughts. had, he had. This is Dylan Roof, not James talking about. But he actually had his own website, yes, which yeah. which no one knew about. Obviously, he got, got he got found after, and he that's where his manifesto was and stuff. Uh, I found it because I really wanted to find it. It's hard to find, and I wish I hadn't. So um, it was silly. It was just like nonsensical. But um, anyway, James became obsessed with that manifesto and with Dylan Roof, deciding that he had to help start the race war. He would spend 18 hours a day online, obsessing over race and sex and the upcoming race war. In the three months before his attack, Jackson visited a website related to white supremacy on 415 occasions, averaging of nearly five times a day. According to the analysis later done by prosecutors, like his idol Dylan Roof, he, f- he frequented the Daily Stormer, which is a website, apparently a racist one, where he read incendiary articles about black crime. Uh, this is how they justified it to themselves. They, they said that global conspiracy hiding black crime um, and the black people had to be killed or why there'd be no white people left. Um, his, his, their thoughts, obviously not mine. Now, he visited sites about Nazism another 139 times during that period, reading conspiracy theories about how Germans were the victims of the real Holocaust and watching a YouTube video extolling Hitler as a human masterpiece. Oh, my God. He also became obsessed with viewing porn that depicted black men having sex with white women. Now, finally, there was a fixation on the apocalypse, including dozens of of articles about global warming. So as time grew close to the attack... He began collecting an arsenal of weapons, which included a hunting rifle, a shotgun, two knives, and a sword I mentioned earlier that he bought on Amazon for $56, and was described as a Roman gladiator sword. And and a sword on Amazon. I know, I was just about to say, the fact that he bought a sword on Amazon and that didn't flag somewhere, like... I mean, I get it. There'll be a lot of collectors out there, right, that have very specific requirements and that aren't going to go and go on to commit like major crimes as well but a sword on amazon like how on earth can that happen you can't even buy like knives on john lewis in the uk like kitchen knives they you have to be in the store like and they have to look at you to make sure that you are able to purchase those knives do you know what i mean it's an odd one for years his parents had been giving him a thousand dollars a month until they found a job but he never got one to keep. On March the 5th, so a few weeks before he killed Timothy, 
they told him the checks would stop. He immediately spoke about re-enlisting into the army, but in reality, he immediately started binge-watching videos of Dylan Roof and reading his manifesto. This apparently, the check stopping, was the trigger that made him put his thoughts into action. A week later, he told his parents he had re-enlisted, even forging enlistment papers when they asked him to see, when they asked him to see them, and they drove him to the airport so he could fly to Germany, and they wouldn't ever see him again. After they had left, he got a cab to the a local hotel, and he spent the next few days planning his attack. When he got, they're to not going to forgive themselves, are they? No, it, it's no, they're not. No, I read a few articles with them, and no. Um, when he got to New York, he would disc- he would listen to his iPod for the first few days as he walked around hunting. It appeared he would describe himself as target acquisition, listening quite often and looking up the lyrics to the Alice Cooper song "No More Mister Nice Guy." So, on the night of the death of Timothy in his hotel room, he Googled how to stab someone in the heart. At the time, like, I can't imagine yeah. how you know you're you're about to go out and kill somebody, and not just to do that in blind rage, but to Google how to do it the most effectively. Because I imagine that's what he wanted to do. He just wanted to cause minimal pain and minimal like screaming. He just, yeah, that's just it's. I this is horrible. Yeah, you want to make sure he was dead, but yeah, yeah. Um, at the time, all the time after his parents left him at the airport. He'd been in text conversation with him about how he was getting on in Germany and settling in. The night before his attack, he sat down and wrote his manifesto, giving it the title Declaration of Total War on Negroes, next to a drawing of a swastika and a Templar cross. He He wrote about the fact that if white women didn't stop betraying white men by having sex with blacks, the total destruction of Western civilization within a generation is guaranteed. Now, I'm not going to go into any more details about what he wrote. You can find it online if you really must, but it mm. gives you that gives you the gist of it. Minutes before going out to kill Timothy, he recorded a video of himself in his underwear, holding a sword to his chest, saying, in the video, the time has come and we have no choice. This has been building for many years. And we've really been left with no options. The planet is going down fast and the best have to be saved. The weak have to die. It's just that simple. This has to be God's will. What other explanation could there be? Yes. Yeah. Was he ever assessed, like, psychologically? No. 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 Well, after his arrest, yes, but not before. No, but like in the yeah, I meant in the army. Like, uh, I don't know, but by all te- by all intents and purposes, he never came across differently. This that level of hatred, though, that is insane, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I can't comprehend it. I didn't roof. I mean, if you've got time, people, he's just a one twisted individual. Um. Yeah, I read his um, manifest. Oh, yesterday I read his manifesto yesterday. Dylan Roofs, uh, not James's. Dylan Roofs. I wasn't going to read it, but I thought it, it'll help me get an understanding of 
his thinking because James idolized him. And I read it and it stuck in my mind all last night because I couldn't figure out the hatred and I couldn't figure mm-hmm. out why and how he could really have such hate for people when just because like, of the colour of their skin. Yeah, for no apparent reason. Yeah. And even in his manifesto, he's talking about how he did used to be racist. And he describes how he became, how it's just, yeah, it's, it's, I wish I never read it because it just loses a little bit of hope in humanity for me. But um, anyway, Rachel, I've, I've spent a lot of time talking about the attack and not the victim, but I did it on purpose this time. I think we have to understand as a society that we assume we know when we meet this type of person that we can assume, we assume that we can spot them a mile off, don't we? Mm. And the simple fact is we can't, we don't, and we never will. This is why you always hear people say how lovely a killer was. Do you remember, Mm. do you remember the very first case that we did together, Rachel? the girl who got kidnapped and killed for no reason. And what did people say about that killer? Exactly the same. Now, I wanted to show, the reason why I've concentrated him so much, because I wanted to show how normal someone could appear while still harboring such dangerous thoughts. So let's be thankful. For whatever reason, James couldn't kill anymore people. I personally think that the reality was a lot worse than the fantasy he'd built in his head. I don't think that it's pleasant killing someone. And I also it also sounds like Timothy fought back. Remember he used to be a street fighter and a boxer. So yeah. he picked the wrong person. And I think maybe James thought like, well, if I can't kill an old man easily, how am I going to kill younger people? He actually yeah. he actually said the reason he didn't do it was because I know we had that quote about him What's the point of doing another? He also said um, that he saw, when he went to do it, he saw so many black men with white women that he became overwhelmed and he thought that it was already lost, the war was already lost. Now, I actually think... That's a bit of a cop-out, I feel. Yeah, I actually think he just thought, in reality, it sounds so amazing just being able to kill someone and go off on a rampage and then he realised... Actually, it's quite because when he ran off from Timothy, he was still alive. Yeah, I, 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 actually, yeah. I'd be inclined to agree with you there. I think that he was more, um, <clears throat> he was more in love with the sensation of of the the impact he'd have. And I I believe I don't know obviously, um, unless you go on to tell me that he wasn't like inherently in his bones racist but that it was a cause that he could get behind for someone that was so, like, lonely and had nothing to hold on to in life. It was just something that he almost became obsessed with, the way that, you know, someone might become obsessed with a brand-new car. Yeah. Or a dog. Or, you know, um, a new girlfriend or something like that, like, in their lives, that they're like, right, I'm just going to hook everything on this. And his obsession was, um, you know, that that hatred um, for um, people of colour. I'm, I'm assuming it wasn't just <clears throat> black people. It was just, you know, 
anyone that wasn't white, basically. So I just, I feel like when he carried out that act, he actually realized, you know, this potentially, like, again, I'm, 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 I'm assuming here that he was like, this isn't all that's cracked up to be. And I actually don't know what I think because he's, he's gone to that police officer telling him, oh, I'm going to release my manifesto and, I, I, I'm going to kill if you don't take these off me. I kind of think that's probably a little bit of a cop out. Um, and actually, you know, he's he's handed himself in because he can't carry it th- carry through. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, we never really know. He obviously got convicted and he's never getting released again. Uh, but um, what he, what's the in America? Do they have a lot? Do they have a lot like more people that are, are like given life sentences and life means life? Yes. Well, he was, I can't remember his sentence now, but I know he's not getting out. Um, he was actually charged with terrorism offences. It was yeah. classed as a, but at this episode's called Homegrown Terrorist for that reason, because he was classed as the same as if it was an ISIS attack. He was trying to disrupt society in America. So, so yeah, um, he... Yeah, I mean, he declined after his conviction. He declined any interviews with any um, newspapers. And actually, he pled guilty, but only because he wanted to plead not guilty so he could have his time in court to try and explain what he did was right. No, you can't give these people voices, can you? Like, that's well, a dangerous game to play. He'd have that right to do it, but he ch- apparently he changed his mind. His legal team said afterwards he changed his mind because his mother visited him and begged yeah. him just to plead guilty and yeah. let it be over with, and he listened to his mum. But, um, but yeah. So that's it's... the thing, like, he, he's been inspired by someone. God knows you do not want someone to be inspired by him and continue yes. that legacy, that chain. Exactly. So let's end by focusing on that old man, Timothy Kaufman, a man literally everyone loved. He was strong but smart when he was working. His whole life was in the service of other people. People were softened him when he had hard times. He was still happy. He would often be found eating his favourite meal of turkey bacon and grits in the diners around New York, smiling, greeting people with happiness and trying to engage people in deep conversations about religion and philosophy. A man who, at 66 years old, should have been able to enjoy retirement, but for a set of unfortunate circumstances, he had to search for recycling to get by. But, do you know what, Rachel? He was still happy. He declared, he used to declare on Twitter, that he loved America. He would often ask celebrities he saw around New York for photos, so he could post them on Twitter. He was a simple man who enjoyed life. Now, I'm going to ask you, and I know you've answered this already mainly, but I'm going to ask you what you thought about this case now, Rach, but also just one question. Why do the good and the innocent, the harmless, why do they always have to suffer at the hands of those who are so bad and so evil? Yeah, it's often the way, isn't it? The victims of these crimes are such good-hearted people, um, you know, picked completely, like, out of nowhere. It's heart- heartbreaking. Even when he was being 
attacked. James reported that Timothy just said one thing to him. Why are you doing this? Uh, you know, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Um, any more thoughts before I wrap up, Rach? No, um, I think you've really brought us an incredibly sad case today, um, filled with two topics that aren't nice to discuss whatsoever, um, but do need to be discussed because, you know, they are so often traits of, of true crime. Um, so thank you for uh, for bringing the, the, the tale to us and... Um, helping us um like you know chat through some of those really hard to discuss topics andrew yes so let me wrap this up then this has been season two episode 22 called homegrown terrorists and for one last time if it's safe for you to do so i'd like you to relax close your eyes and picture the scene that person you know there's an upbringing you're envious of, a family who cares for them, and has a history of helping people. When you look into that person's eyes, what do you truly see? So thank you all for listening, and until next week, um, stay safe, and we'll see you soon. We'll see you soon, guys. Bye. Bye.